Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Good morning, everybody. Um, like Matt said, my name's Graham Stolte, um, and I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Um, it could be such a stressful and busy time of year, so I hope you found some rest in the middle of all that, and if that wasn't possible for you, then I'm especially glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, and yes, the Stoltes did have a Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for asking. Um, my wife, Bree, and our son, Jonah, and I went up to Boone to be with, um, with Bree's family, and um, I got to do one of my favorite things, which is be locked in a small space with my in-laws. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It was, um, <laughs> they were in there with me. They were trapped in there with me. Um, no, but I got to tend a fire um, all Christmas Day and um, the whole time we were there. And uh, For me, that's a really fun, special, magical thing because growing up in Charleston, it was the AC that was blasting like almost every Christmas rather than a fire going. Um, and so Jonah had a nice warm fire that he won't remember for his first Christmas, but I think I took enough pictures of the fire um, that he'll, <laughs> he'll remember it forever. Um, so as we settle in to Mark 5, um, that we're continuing our sermon series on, you might remember that uh, the Gospel of Mark is often called the, um, the most to-the-point of the Gospels because Mark is kind of uh, a just-the-facts-jack kind of writer where he's, he's basically there to say who Jesus is, what he did, and then why that matters. Uh, and so our passage this morning, like Matt said, found in the middle of your bulletin or up on the screen up here, Mark 5, verse 21 through 43. So hear now the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why do you trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks in this Christmas season for the gift of your word, for the gift of your son, and for your church. Father, I ask that you would open our hearts so that we may hear your voice, hear you call us deeper into your love, and that we might see you more clearly. I ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us where we are and that he would draw us closer to you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, uh, as we get the ball rolling, I invite you to look inside your bulletin and find a quote by Tim Keller. Shocker. Uh, And Keller says, If you go to Jesus, he may ask of you far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you dared ask or think. And I invite you to keep those words in mind as we unpack uh, the events in this passage because you may notice that neither Jairus nor the unnamed woman have their prayer answered. But here's what I mean. Both of these people rightly seek Jesus um, as the answer to their most felt need you know, and their most sincere prayer. But neither of them have that specific prayer answered. And that's because the heart of Christ is so much bigger and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And his heart is always uh, willing to give more than we ask. And now our passage opens with Jairus, who's one of the religious leaders in the community, and he's facing down a parent's worst nightmare, their child being deathly ill. And and I want to be as delicate as I can because many of us don't have to try very hard to put ourselves in Jairus' shoes. We don't have to try very hard to hear the urgency in his voice, and we can imagine how scared he is for his daughter. And Jairus has put all his eggs in one basket, the hope that Jesus, this unbelievable miracle worker, will be able to save his daughter. And I can imagine that his fear was transformed into hope as he led Jesus through the crowd 
towards his house. And I'm sure that Jairus couldn't get through the crowd fast enough that he knew how close his daughter was to being healed. And all he had to do was just get Jesus there. But something unexpected happens. Jesus stops. In the middle of the crowd, Jesus just stops. Picking up in verse 30, we read that Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And if I were Jairus, I'd be, I'd be thinking, Come on, man. We are so close. Please don't waste your time like this. You are in the middle of a gigantic crowd. Of course people are touching you. Everyone's touching you. Then here we get a glimpse into the Savior's heart. And in the middle of what is quite literally a life and death situation, Jesus won't be hurried. Jesus won't overlook an opportunity to restore the weak and the wounded. Picking up in verse 32, it says that Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. Now this woman had just been miraculously healed by touching Christ's robe. So why does she come in fear and in trembling? What was she afraid of? Did, did you even wonder that? And in order to understand why she was so scared, you need to know a little bit about what her life must have been like for the past 12 years that she was bleeding uncontrollably. Because at that time in Israel's history, the people still had to obey the cleanliness laws. And these were a set of laws that governed everything from what you do about mold and mildew in your house to what kind of fabrics your clothes can be made out of. And part of these laws gave special attention to people who had a hemorrhage, like this woman did. Leviticus 15, 25 to 30 explains that anyone who bleeds uncontrollably like that are actually declared to be ceremonially unclean. And that means that she's unable to um, participate in any kind of worship. She can't go into the synagogue. And she'd actually be barred from pretty much all of her normal life. And not only would she be unclean, but everything that she touched and everyone that she touched would become unclean. And then they would have to undergo this long, drawn-out process of purification so that they could get back to their normal life. And so to kind of help you wrap your head around what kind of um, life that would be like for her, what life for her would be like, I'll give you a more modern example. All right, so... Just kind of come with me and think back to a time when people were kind and understanding. A time when things weren't so divisive and politically toxic. A time when everyone was thinking clearly and no one was being emotional. And we were all just incredibly compassionate and really the best versions of ourselves. Think back to the winter of 2020 and the height of COVID-19. And now imagine that you're walking 
into a crowded grocery store around the holidays without a face mask. And not only that, but you have a terrible, nasty, snotty, disgusting type of cough. And as you turn down each aisle while you're looking for your groceries, you see everybody just scramble away from you. And you see some friends that you know in the frozen food section, but they act like they have no idea who you are. And then as you're going to the checkout line, you get a call or a text from your parents saying that you shouldn't come home for Christmas. And they'll just mail you your gifts. And now, if you can wrap your head around that, you have a very, very small taste of what this woman went through every single day of her life for 12 years. And she had tried everything that she could to return to a normal life. She spent all of her money seeing every doctor that was available, and she underwent every painful procedure that was available to her, and none of it worked. And all she wanted from Jesus was just a touch-and-go healing, this kind of stealthy, unnoticed miracle that would get her life back on track. But when Jesus noticed and called her out, her greatest fear came true because she'd seen this same situation, this same song and dance play out time and again in her life for 12 years. And so I'm sure that she was waiting for this teacher, for Jesus, to absolutely explode on her. I'm sure that she thought that he would just rip her to shreds in front of this whole crowd for touching him and for making him unclean. Because if she touched Jesus and made him unclean, then all the rest of the crowd touching Jesus would be made unclean. And then the crowd that was touching those people would be made unclean. So in essence, she would be a super spreader, and she would be patient zero of this pandemic of uncleanness that would sweep through this crowd. But that isn't what happens. Instead, Jesus meets her right there, in the middle of her deepest fear, and he gives us a glimpse into his heart. Verse 34 tells us that he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. But why did Jesus do that? Why, why would he call her out only to just kindly send her away in peace? Why make such a scene if that's what you're going to do. I mean, after all, that isn't what she wanted at all. She only wanted to be healed quietly so that she could go about getting back to her normal life. That's what she wanted, but that isn't what she needed. This woman who'd been cast out, who was a pariah within her community, needed something more than just a touch-and-go stealthy healing. She needed to be declared cleansed. She needed to be redeemed and restored. And she needed that to happen in front of the very people who cast her out. But the way that Jesus addresses her can't be overlooked or dismissed. He calls her daughter. And in fact, that's the only time that Jesus refers to anyone that way. Because in that time, daughter was 
used to mean someone's literal biological daughter, or it was a term of deep endearment. And so here the crowd sees Jesus, this teacher with tremendous power and authority, and they watch as he dignifies this woman with unbelievable kindness and compassion. And they hear him speak to her in a way that's more intimate and delicate than they would have ever imagined. And in a way that would have been totally beneath any of the religious leaders at that time. And Jesus does this because he's the living, breathing embodiment of the heart of God. And that's why he can say in Matthew 9, 7, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In essence, I want you to be loving and compassionate towards each other rather than using obedience to mask your cold, legalistic exclusivity. And so Jesus does exactly that. And he redeems and he restores this woman so that she's no longer estranged. He's made a way for her to come back in from the outside. And he's restored the relationships that have been put on hold for over a decade. And so what is Jairus doing during this beautiful picture of redemption and restoration? Well, I imagine that he's a nervous wreck because he knows that time's working against him. And if it were me, I'd be thinking, I mean, yeah, Jesus, what you did for this, this woman's great and all, but my daughter is dying. She is my only concern, and she is my greatest concern. And verse 35 says that while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why do you trouble the teacher any further? So now Jairus' prayer and his hope of Jesus healing his sick daughter has just been smashed to pieces. And I imagine that time stopped for him in that moment as he heard those cold, soul-crushing words that your daughter is dead. And without hesitation, I can tell you that losing my child is my greatest fear. And for me, it's been really scary to see how my list of worries and fears has seemingly quadrupled and exploded since becoming a father just six months ago. I mean, I went from shooting guns and jumping out of airplanes for the army to becoming completely undone at just the thought of my child in pain. And so I know that if it were me, if I were in Jairus' shoes, my sadness would turn to anger in a heartbeat. And immediately I'd be thinking, Jesus, this happened because of you. This happened because you chose to stop and play around with this woman, a woman who's been sick for 12 years. She wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't about to die. But my daughter was. And now my daughter's paid the price because you didn't have your priorities straight. You could have healed that woman literally at any time. But you chose the worst time to do it. And your choice cost my daughter her life. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. In that moment, he's speaking directly in 
to Jairus' deepest despair, saying, don't fear, only believe. And he doesn't help Jairus publicly like he did with the woman. Instead, he opts for a more private and a more intimate setting of Jairus' home. And he doesn't allow any of the crowd to follow them there. Right? In this deliberate selection of the audience and the setting tells us that Jesus is choosing both based not just on the needs of the person he's healing, but also the needs of the people that he allows to see him perform these miracles. Because the crowd needed to see that this woman was healed, restored, and dignified so that she could have her life back in that moment, so that her relationships could be repaired, so that they could see how Jesus treats those whom they cast out. But the crowd doesn't need to see this family's suffering. Jairus and his family's sadness isn't a spectacle for those unaffected by their grief. And so Jesus acts accordingly. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us why. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And in that verse, it's important to understand that the Greek word for sympathize is actually a combination of two words, which literally translate as to co-suffer. Right? And so sympathize here is not a cool and detached pity. It's a depth of felt solidarity such as is echoed in our own lives, most, clo- most closely only as parents to children. Indeed, it's deeper even than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. And not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feeling drawn to our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. And so Jesus enters their home into the very heart of this family's sadness, and he tells them something that's too good to be true. He tells them that the child is not dead, but she's sleeping. And the text says that the people actually laughed at him. The mourners gathered, not the family members that laughed at him. And one commentator points out that the mourners were so absolutely certain that the girl was dead that they responded with scornful laughter. And that this instantaneous switch from tears to scornful laughter shines some light on how superficial their grief really was. And they laughed at Jesus like he was either stupid or that he was making an extremely inappropriate joke. And so Jesus sends them out and he takes Jairus and his wife and says, okay, let me show you. And it's with the same gentleness and love that he showed the woman in the crowd that he tells this little girl, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And the word little here isn't a reference to the girl's size, since we read later that she's actually 12 years old. Little, in that time, was actually another term of endearment, like precious or beloved, and similar to the way that he used daughter to address the woman in the crowd. And so again we see 
that the prayer Jesus answers isn't the prayer that Jairus came with. Jairus came with the prayer that his sick daughter would be healed. But that didn't happen. Instead, the prayer that was answered was his dead daughter was resurrected. But what if that's not your story? What if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, that's great that Jesus did that for those people and all, but that's not true for me. That's not true for me at all. If my story is anything like Jairus' story, then it's in that one moment that he receives the worst news of his life and, that, and it goes no further. And now Jesus is telling me not to be afraid and to trust him? What, what do you mean? What do you mean trust you? Right? Your disciples couldn't even stop from being afraid and they couldn't trust you when you were arrested, crucified, and killed. So how can you say that to me? How can you tell me to do something that the men who knew you best, the people who spent the most time with you here on earth, couldn't even do? And Dane Ortland writes, perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you do not know what to conclude except that this mercy of God in Christ has passed you up. Maybe you've been deeply mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust, abandoned, taken advantage of, and perhaps you carry a pain that'll never heal till you're dead. If my life is any evidence of the mercy of God in Christ, you might think, I'm not impressed. But Ortland continues by reminding us that the true evidence of Christ's mercy towards you isn't found in your life and it isn't found in my life. It's found in Christ's life. It's found in his life. A life that was marred with rejection and betrayal, mockery and scorn, suffering, temptation, and anxiety. And we're so tempted to think that, yeah, Jesus is with us, you know, he's on our side and he's helping us, but that's only when life's going well. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the, mo the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. And as we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. And that sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past, and it's now shouldered by him in the present. And that's what Hebrews 4.15 reminds us of, that it's in our weaknesses that Christ sympathizes with us the most, co-suffers with us the most, it's in the depths of that despair that he most resonates with us. But then we may be tempted to think, well, I mean, that was Jesus here on earth, right? He's not here now. He left all that behind, and he's up there with God the Father, and he's just waiting to come back. And yes, that is true, but two things can be true at the same time. 
It is true that Jesus is waiting to come back and set everything right. But it's also true that he's up there right now with a heart that absolutely bleeds for you. Because once Jesus put on flesh, he never took it off. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That not that just a baby was born, but that God put on flesh and dwelt with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Right? And so now in heaven, Jesus is every bit the man that he was here on earth. And he still has that same gigantic, sympathetic heart that he had while he was here. And it's that sympathetic heart that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 53 when he says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And, you know, uh, being in seminary school, I, I never, you know, before going in there, I never imagined that I would read anything written between the Bible, you know, in like the 19th century. Um, but if you look in your bulletin, uh, there's a great quote by the Puritan Richard Sibbs who wrote all the way back in the 1600s. And he kind of expands on exactly what Isaiah is saying about this Savior, this co-suffering, sympathetic Savior. And he says, God sees fit that we should taste of that cup which his son drank so deep that we might feel a little what sin is and what his son's love was. But our comfort is that Christ drank the dregs of that cup for us and will help us so that our spirits may not utterly fail under that little taste of his displeasure, which we may feel. And he became not only a man, but a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. Whatever may be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. And it's through Christ's life that we see the greater reality he was pointing to when he healed this woman in the crowd and when he resurrected Jairus' daughter. Because Christ could heal the woman and make her clean because he was treated as unclean. And he wasn't treated as unclean by people in a crowd or a synagogue leader, but by God himself. And Jesus redeemed her to show the even greater truth that through him we are redeemed. And the restoration of her earthly relationships points us to the greater, truer truth of us being restored into right relationship with the creator of the universe, with the almighty God. And he, he could resurrect Jairus' daughter 
because he did what he came to do. He came to defeat death once and for all, right? And his defeating death wasn't what he did for Jairus' daughter, putting more time on her clock or just delaying the inevitable. What he did was he made a way for us to enter into a place where death doesn't even exist, a place where pain and suffering, sickness and sadness can never touch you again. And it's in our passage that Jesus shows us that while what we ask and pray for may be right and it may be good, but that he came to give us something infinitely greater. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you, we have heavy hearts because the truth of this life is that as your children, as Christians, we know that we are going to have to hold sadness and hope at the same time. Sometimes, Father, that just feels like a burden that's too much to bear. So I ask, Lord, that you would lighten our hearts, that you would show us the truer truth of what waits for us. The truth of your son, of his sacrifice, of the kingdom that waits for us. I ask, Father, that as we enter into this new year that we would bring with us the hope that can only be found in Christ. The joy that can only be found in what awaits us after this life and the truth that will never change. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.